Chapter 7, Part 4 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. We're just going to continue in our series of John. Keep it going. Um, before we get to our passage today, though, we're going to actually look at chapter 7, which we had already gone through, and we're just going to set the stage, set the tone for our scripture. All right, so I want to just do a quick review. John, 30, John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, so greatest means biggest, largest, most people are there, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been, yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. So Jesus is currently at the festival, day after day, just with the people, and he's kind of just shouting these crazy things for all people to hear, right? Rivers of living water will flow within you for those who put their faith in me. And these crowds, they're actually amazed at what Jesus has to say. Some of the crowds are like, wow, this guy is like, he must be a prophet because of the way he speaks. He reminds me of Elijah. Like, it's just so incredible. And then there are others who are like, no, this man is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And when the Pharisees and religious leaders hear the crowds kind of talking, this, this stirring is happening, they start burning with anger because Jesus is not their Messiah. They do not want Jesus to be that person. So they try to figure out ways for him to be apprehended so he'll stop talking. Verse 45, they send the temple guards, and then this is what happens. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them, right? They're frustrated. They're angry. The Pharisees are kind of full of themselves, they're right? They're like, if none of the Pharisees believe in this guy, how can any of you think that he is the Messiah? But the Pharisees don't do anything to him yet because of the crowds. They're not able to act upon their anger. So what do they do? They go and they begin to plot. All right? And that takes us to our passage. The passage that we're going to be looking at is something like a showdown. I want you to imagine like, like, like a dance battle. Right? It's like there's a circle of people and it's Jesus versus the Pharisees. Right? There is a battle of wits, a showdown if you will. And as we, look this as we look through this passage, we're just going to go through it. We're just going to make a couple observations on the amazing grace of God. Can you all say amazing for me? Amazing. Sometimes we forget that the grace of God is amazing, right? Yeah, let's meditate on that today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. 
We thank you, Lord, for the work of the cross. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing. Father, I pray that you would fill this place with your spirit, that you would anoint your holy people, your chosen people here, God, that, Lord, we would receive your word. I pray, Lord, that all the words of my mouth, Lord, would be pleasing unto you, God. So we pray that all of this worship would be a blessing, it would be incense to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is John 7, 53 to 8, uh, chapter 8. They all went home. This means everyone went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I want to pause here real quick. There were a couple of retreats that happened last week. A lot of you here, I know you went to Camp Metro. You got a nice tan going on, even though the weather wasn't great, I heard, but I heard it was a great time, right? You all retreated. There was a singles and newlywed retreat. We retreated. We had a great time as well. You see, we see in Scripture the practice of going away. The practice of retreating is very common, actually. People retreat all the time. Happens in the Old Testament. Elijah, right? He's doing battle with the prophets of Baal. He does all these miracles. But what, what does he need? He needs time with God. He needs time with God. So if you feel like, you know, I just don't hear the Lord the same. I just don't feel in tune with the Lord. Maybe you need to retreat. Verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the, the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, Jesus knows the Pharisees are angry. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, I think we're cool. Jesus knows that these Pharisees are very angry with him. However, Jesus comes back to the temple anyway. First thing, crack of dawn, Jesus is there ready to teach people. And I love that because Jesus just shows us how accessible he is at all times, crying out in the temple courts with the crowds, always with the people, right? And while he's teaching, the Pharisees bring in a woman caught in adultery, all right? Now, this is all sorts of messed up. Why? Because one, yes, she is committing a crime. She is committing a crime. Adultery is a crime. She's not being faithful to her husband. Purity culture was very big in the Middle East. Her expectation is to die, right? However, the Pharisees must have known somehow. It's not like you commit adultery in public in, in, out in the open, especially if death is the sentence. They must have known. They must have waited for her to commit such an act, jumped on the opportunity, grabbed her, brought her out, humiliated her in this way. This woman is expecting to die because that is the punishment that comes along with it. Now I have a question. Parents, have any of you ever stolen anything? Raise your hand, nice and high. Come on, come on. Now confess to your children right now. <laughs> Tell them what you stole and when you stole it. When I was six, I stole for the first time. You know, um, what do they do? You know what they do in grocery stores, right? You get to the register and what do you see there? Candy. 
right? It's temptation at its finest. It's, it's so like, especially as a parent now, and say so you go through the grocery store, your child is just like, I want it. I want it. And you go and you're just like, no, you keep saying no. You get to the register and then there's just this display of candy and things, delight, right? My mom was really good at saying no. I don't know how she just said no. And I knew it was no, right? But this particular day, I saw Hawaiian punch bubblegum. Right, do you have a picture? Look at it. It's so ugly. But I wanted it. And for some reason, this day, I thought to myself, I don't need my mom to take this home with me, children. I don't need her to know that I have Hawaiian punch gum. So what did I do? When she wasn't looking, I grabbed it. I was wearing short shorts, so I didn't have pockets. I put it in my underwear, right? I put it in my underwear. It was safe. And then I walked out. And, you know, my heart was beating real fast because I thought, like, alarms would go off and the police would come out. Nothing happened. I went into my car. I was scot-free. I was like, this is great. Check my underwear. Still there. Check. All good. We get home. My mom goes into the kitchen to, like, unload groceries and stuff. I'm just in the living room. And what do I have to do? I have to enjoy my spoils, right? I take out the gum, pop a piece in my mouth. Mmm. So good. So sweet. So artificially metallic tasting, <laughs> worth it, right? And I'm chewing, and I'm just enjoying this. And this is how I, re I remember this memory. I could have swear. My, I heard my mom go. <laughs> I feel like, I felt like she smelt the sugar coming out of my mouth, right? I mean, she probably heard me chewing, but my mom just out of nowhere is, what is that? Right? She goes, what is that? And I was like, oh, no. And she's like, you know, and she starts screaming. She starts running at me. And what do I do there? Kids, what do you do there? I ran. I started running. I ran. I took the gum. I ran. I ran into the bathroom. So smart. I locked the door. She's slamming on the door. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm chewing all the gum inside the bathroom so to make sure that I enjoy the whole pack. Right? And my mom just slamming. She's like, open the door. I'm like, no, you're going to punish me. So scary. So scary. Right? But when you are expecting punishment, it's scary. Right? When you are expecting consequences, it's scary. This woman is expecting punishment. The Pharisees are ruthless. They drag her out. They humiliate her in front of this crowd. She thinks she's going to die. But she ends up before Jesus. And that's our first observation. Even in our worst moments, Jesus can meet us. Jesus will meet us even in our worst moments. I would actually even take that further and say, especially in our worst moments, Jesus will meet us. Even in our sin, Jesus will meet us. That is the kind of Savior and God that we have, the God who calls his people, who longs for his people to be with him. That is Jesus. We might feel like our sin makes us unapproachable, that God wants nothing to do with us, when we're in our sin. But no, that's not true. Right? Romans tells us, while we were still enemies, 
while we were still enemies, God did the work to reconcile us to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that is also takes us into our second point. That is, sin is real. Sin is real. This woman is cheating on her husband with another man. She's being unfaithful, caught in the act. In the Middle East, women were actually the symbol and measure for familial purity. So in the actuality, families, they killed their women if they knew they were impure. That's how insane, that's how intense it was. Even if you don't take this into account, what she's doing is sin. It's destructive. I've seen and heard from the mouths of our youth the destructive force of infidelity and broken marriages in their parents. I mean, I've experienced it myself, right? My own father who was unfaithful to my mom. I know how hurtful that betrayal feels like. I've seen how it's hurt our family. I mean, even like my, my, my child, she's two and a half years old, my girl. And even when my wife and I are fighting and it gets intense, you know what she does? She comes up and she says, stop, stop, no, stop. And she tries, she, she gets in between us like this, tries to break us apart. Even in their infancy, they know something's off, right? The sin is real. The damage is real. However, this woman is not the only one in sin here. The Pharisees are evil in their intent. They drag this woman out, but in order to commit adultery, it takes two to tango. Where's the man? The law in Leviticus cites that both parties are called to be stoned. However, the Pharisees, they leave him out of this ordeal. They don't care to uphold the law. They only care for their own objective. They're using this woman. They're using her to make a point to humiliate Jesus. So they use her as a spectacle in front of this crowd. This is evil evil, all so that they can prove themselves right. The sin here is real. So they ask in dramatic fashion, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. What will you have us do? And I think, honestly, Jesus' response is so cool. I, if I could be as cool as Jesus, I don't know. All right, this is what. So Jesus' response is, he begins to write on the ground like this, Right? Now, most of us would be like, what, why, would you, why is he writing on the ground, right? Um, thank you for asking. I'll tell you why he's writing on the ground. The day after the greatest day of a festival is declared Sabbath. It's a Shabbat, which means no work can happen on that day. Okay? Track with me. No work can happen on that day. However, uh, I mean, so that also means that Writing is not allowed. It is against the law to write. But the loophole to that is, if you're writing in the dirt, it's okay. Because the wind will blow it away. And it's very temporal, very temporary. And so what Jesus, I hear a lot of people like, mm, mm, mm. and what Jesus is doing here is he is telling them 
through his actions, I know the law just as well as you do. That's what he's showing them right now. I know the law just as well as you do. Verse 7, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What's happening here is Jesus saying, I authorize this execution because it's deserved, but which one of you can join me in this judgment? He's making it personal, making them take responsibility for their actions. All right, it might be a lot, but the Pharisees are actually really smart here, okay? There, I want you to imagine we're in the temple right now. There's a crowd of people, right? There's a ruckus, something's happening. This woman's being dragged out. At every temple uh, gathering, there was always a cohort of Roman guards because they were under Roman occupation at the time. So these men are probably like alert. Like what is going on? What is this crowd doing right now? The reason why this trap is so interesting is because at the time, even though Jewish law said that the woman should be stoned, under Roman law, no one was allowed to authorize an execution unless it was the Roman government. So had Jesus thrown the first stone, then the Roman soldiers would have taken him. However, what Jesus does here is he kind of flips and he, he's, he gives it back to them. He says, all right, you're, this is technically true, but are you going to join me then when the Roman soldiers come? Okay? Verse 9, right? So they're kind of stuck with this question, verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So everyone leaves. Right, the older ones usually leave first because the younger ones wait to see what the older ones are doing. Everyone leaves, but the woman's still there waiting. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, finally, it's just the two of them. And I think the scene is so interesting, right? Brings us to our next two observations, the final two. They come hand in hand. The first is God's gracious mercy truly, truly comes unearned and undeserved. Think about it. This woman doesn't even have a name in this story, right? She's actually just standing there still waiting for her punishment because she knows she did wrong. She's waiting for it. Jesus looks like she doesn't do anything else. She doesn't repent. She doesn't say, I'm sorry. She doesn't bow down before him. She's not crying. She's not saying she'll do better next time. Nothing. Jesus just says, did no one condemn you? She's like, no one. Nobody. And he says, okay, go. Doesn't even have a name. Nothing. He doesn't even know her like that. But Jesus pardons her. And she gets to go. The second is the grace of Jesus Christ is costly. You see, this gesture seems simple, right? But it's costly. There's something inherently powerful about costly love, right? And I'll explain why this is, why is this costly, you're asking. 
This is costly because in the context of Jesus' relationship and his back and forth with the Pharisees, what happens every time Jesus shuts down the Pharisees? What do they do? They go and then they plot how to murder him. Without fail, that is what they do. They scheme how to murder this man. Jesus takes the wrath that was belonging to this woman. He redirects it to himself. It's costly. There's just something so inherently powerful about costly love, right? Costly love, it marks you. All right, people call these um, core memories. Core memories, right? You hold on to them. You remember them forever. You know, when I was in middle school, um, something that was really popular were wide leg jeans, especially Jenko jeans. Anyone remember Jenko jeans? I wanted them so bad. Do we have a picture of Jenko jeans? Yes. Yes. They're like kind of coming back. It's weird, right? They're slowly coming back. Not as wide as they were before. Oh, yes. Yes, look at those pockets. I remember the, like the pockets, like your wallet was all the way down here. So like when you needed to get something, it was like, I can't reach it, right? <laughs> Jenko jeans. They were so cold in the winter. <laughs> but I want, I just remember because I was bullied. I, I was really unpopular. We, we were pretty poor as a family, so I didn't wear the nicest clothes. And, you know, I, I knew our situation because I, my mom worked a double night shift as a nurse. My dad was unemployed for a while. And so we would always shop at, like, discount stores. And I remember there's a store in Closter Plaza um, before, you know, way, way back. And um, this store was having a liquidation sale. It was called Kid Stuff. Liquidation sale, 70% off everything. I was like, okay. And my mom's like, we're going. I was like, oh, fine. So we go, we're walking around, and I, I, like, I hate everything because I'm a middle schooler, right? I'm like, I hate everything, right? And I see a pair of Jenko jeans in the middle. They look just like those. And I'm like, Mom, those are the jeans. Those. And she goes, they're hideous. Why do you want them? I'm like, please, please. And I feel like she could feel my desperation, right? So she let me get them. We went to the dressing room. She's trying them on. I put them on. She's like, they're hideous. Why do you want that? I'm like, no, they fit just right. They're perfect, right? She's fine. We get to the register, and it's just, it's just these jeans. And the register rings us up. The register goes, these will be $160. Just crazy. I, on eBay right now, a, 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 like a 10-year used pair of Jenko jeans, $150 right now, right? Anyway, the lady goes, $160. My mom says, I thought there was like a sale going on in the whole store. And the lady goes, yes, everything is on sale except these jeans. <laughs> My heart is sank. And I just remember, like, you know, like I told you, my mom's really good at saying no. I just remember thinking, like, okay, we're putting these back, right? So I, I actually went to grab it to put it back. And then my mom looks at me. And I'll never forget the way she looked at me. My mom looks at me, and then she reaches into her purse, and she grabs out every dollar. She begins to count all the dollars. She begins to count out quarters to make up the money. She has just enough 
and she buys me these jeans. It's just jeans, right? But I know that it cost her. And that marked me. It cost Jesus a tremendous amount to pardon this woman. It cost him. You see, when he pardons her, right, it's, all, it's a display of his relationship with us. She doesn't repent. She doesn't, you know, come and promise him, like, better behavior. She's not a renewed model of herself. No. He pardons her right away. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. Receive my grace and then leave your life of sin. That is the grace, the costly grace and mercy of our Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. When I first stepped into ministry, I didn't really understand how I was going to serve. Um, I don't know, people like told me I should do it and like I, I believed them. I felt like God was telling me to do it. And, but I actually found out early on that I wasn't a naturally gifted teacher or speaker. So like that was a big downer. And I wasn't particularly passionate about a people group or a location. However, I felt like God was calling me to use something. And when I looked at like my inventory of skills, the only thing I really saw was I had a lot of mistakes and I had a lot of regrets. Right? When I was a youth group pastor, the kids used to ask me, wait, I'm looking at you, the kids used to ask me, is there anything that you're good at? And I'd be like, what the heck? <laughs> like that's messed up, right? But that's all I shared. I shared all the time about like how I messed up. If I could write a book, it would be Everything You Shouldn't Do by Doug Cho, right? But I felt like God was calling me to use these things. I felt like God was calling me to share my mistakes and my regrets. I mean, my sin. I've shared many times from this stage, lying, cheating, abortion, sleeping around, so many people I've hurt. I regret these things. I do. And every time I come up here and I share, I, do, I feel naked. People wonder and ask me, how can I talk about these things in public and not be ashamed? How can I show up the next day? And simply, it's because I'm grateful that even in my darkest sin, even before I knew Jesus, my Jesus chose me just the way Jesus chose you. His grace is what changed me. His mercy is what transformed me. Because of that, I felt called, and I wanted to love people the way God loved me. That is the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Mm. I pray, and we're going to pray together, but I pray that you can remember the depths from which you came from. Not to guilt you, not to make you feel ashamed. No, that's not from God. To remember the goodness and the greatness of our Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for your word, for your story, for your son, and for your sacrifice. Thousands of years ago, before Christ even came to earth, you had a plan to save your people. You prophesied it, that you would call them home. Lord, you are still calling your people home. You're still calling them into your presence to stand before you, not ashamed, not condemned, but as righteous children, as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. that we were once strangers, exiles, and you so quickly called us family, your chosen people, your priesthood, your beloved. And so God, we just want to rejoice in you right now. Fill us with your spirit. Right now, um, I just want to like, make a call. If you want God to renew the joy of your salvation, if you want to remember what it was to, to just really live into that grace, that joy you felt when you first believed, when you first came to faith, when you first knew that you were free from your bondage, I just want you to stand up. I want you to stand up and I just want you to present yourself to the Lord right now. Stand before him and say, God, I'm here and I desire for my faith to be renewed. I desire for the joy of my salvation to be renewed because God, I'm living for you. Thank you for standing. Yes. Mm. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray over my brothers and sisters. I pray, God, that you would honor them, that you would bless them, but that you would fill them with your spirit, even those that have not stood, that God, you would touch them with the joy of your salvation, God. You would restore it that, Lord, the passion of their first love would return and that they would live into it every single day, Lord God. That nothing would separate them from your love and that they would know the height, the depth, the width of love that you have for them. Nothing, no power, no angel, no demon can separate us from the love that is from you, God. Amen. So, Lord, restore to them joy. And I pray, Lord, that they would live freely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.